In two weeks, I'm going to do a two-part message series on the end because there are people in our midst that believe that the end might happen on 12-21-12. Now, they're not right because no one knows, but it's an opportunity for us to talk about what's going to happen at the end. I'm really, I, I wanted to start that series today. But I got something else I need to do that really need to do today. So I want you to be thinking right now. Uh, you're thinking uh, you've never heard a message on the second coming, on the eve of the first coming that we celebrate. But on on twelve twenty on the twenty third of December, I want to be sharing a message on the second coming of Christ. And so you have friends that uh, they, you know we know folk. They come at Christmas and Easter, and they get the same story. There's a little baby born in a manger. Well, there's a king that's coming a second, a second time apart from sin unto salvation. And we're going to be talking about that because, folks, I don't know what's going on in the world, but there's a lot of stuff happening out there. And so you be, I want you to be praying for me as I prepare this series of messages. And I want you to be praying for your friends because uh, this, this is a time. Uh, you know, it, it's not going to happen on twelve twenty one, but it could happen before then, or it could happen after then. It, so, so we need to be ready. Now, having said that, the end is coming, but because the end's coming, we need to talk about what we need to be doing. And so, let me just say, as I get into the message, um, I want to give you a message today that you probably hear every year because today marks the beginning. If you noticed in your program, today marks the beginning of what's in many uh, Baptist churches across America, a week of prayer for foreign missions. And and so over the course of my uh, two years plus here at First Baptist Church, we've had, I got to thinking about this last night, we've had a number of people that have come on board with our church that didn't grow up Southern Baptist. And so I want to I want to share, I want to lay the groundwork for the message this morning, and it's all, I promise it's all going to connect together. But each year... Uh, at Christmas, because Christmas is a time of giving, uh, we in Southern Baptist circles, we focus on mission giving during the holidays. And, and as Southern Baptists, each year we receive a Christmas offering for foreign missions. And historically, it's been called the Lottie Moon offering or Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And if you've never heard of that or that's new to you, that's okay. Uh, you, If you didn't grow up Southern Baptist, you probably don't know what a Lottie Moon offering is, but it is a is an offering for foreign missions that we take each year around Christmas or that we receive. We don't take it, but we receive it each year around Christmas. And the proceeds go, uh, all of them, to the Foreign Mission Board, the International Mission Board. And it's in honor of Lottie Moon because she was a devoted missionary of yesteryear in Southern Baptist life. And so we, as Southern Baptists, we are passionate about missions and we have this sense of, of calling and this conviction from God that we need to share the story of Jesus because one day the end is coming and it could be sooner than we think. Now, a lot of people believe, a lot of people believe that the distinctive of Southern Baptists is doctrinal. They think the reason we're Southern Baptists is because we believe this, this, and this, and we don't believe that, that, and that. And, and the reality is there are many churches that believe 
similar if not the same as we do doctrinally. What makes Southern Baptists unique is we partner together with Southern Baptists all over the nation and literally the world to do missions to share the message of Jesus Christ because we have this conviction that everyone should get to hear the story. Now, as, uh, as a person with us today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, um, you're a child of the King. Uh, in fact, you're a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you're a, a follower of Christ, you're a child of God. And I just wonder, sometimes the, why we don't more often sit down and think about how did we get to become a child of God? How did you get to where you are? Uh, how did you become a follower of Jesus Christ? And, and, the, and I don't know your story, but I do know you became a follower because someone cared enough to share it. It may have been a pastor. It may have been a Sunday school teacher sitting in a classroom. It may have been a vacation Bible school when you were a little boy or a little girl. Uh, it may have been someone that uh, spoke to you on the street or shared with you in the office. But the reason you became a follower of Jesus Christ is because someone cared enough about you to tell you the story. And the reason I became a follower of Jesus Christ is because someone cared enough. I mean, I, I, you know this if you've been coming any length of time. When I was 10 years old, my pastor sat down with me on a park bench. And he told me about Jesus. I stand here, and we're here, many of us, believers in Christ, because somebody cared enough. Imagine what your life would be like if you didn't know. What if you didn't know Jesus? See, it's hard for us to remember, uh, but if you don't know Jesus, when you lay your head down on the pillow, you wonder, well, where are you going to wake up at tomorrow? Is he going to be here? Are you going to be in eternity? And if you're in eternity, where are you going to be? See, imagine what it's like. See, we, we take for granted the fact that we have hope. No matter what happens in this life, we have hope. No matter what happens in this life, we have peace if we're a follower of Christ because of what he's done. And the reason is because somebody cared enough to share with us, to tell us a story. Well, as we sit in the auditorium this morning, um, or at least on the first day of November of 2012, there were 6,422 people groups in our world that are considered unreached people groups. That means that less than 2% of them know the gospel or evangel evangelicals. And of those 6,422 people groups, over 4,400 of them are considered last frontier a last frontier people group is a group of people of like uh, language, culture, whatever. And, and if they're a last frontier group, that means that in the last two years, no one has even attempted to plan a church or do a work, uh, evangelical work in their people group. 4,400 people groups have had no gospel witness for at least the last two years. 4,400 people groups. There's only 11,000 in some people groups. 
Now, of those 4,400, now this is where I want you to try to get your mind around this. Of those 4,400 people groups, there are 194 of those people groups that have at least a million people in them. At least a million. So there's a, there's 194 people groups that have as many people as probably the city of San Antonio or more. Nobody today is sharing the gospel in those groups. Nobody. And so as as I stand before you today, 4.2 billion people in our world are part of what we would call unreached people groups. That's 57 or 8% probably of the total population. But over 4,400, nobody's telling them. And so my question for us to, to wrestle with this morning, I don't know that I've ever really asked the question quite this way. But, but here's what I want you, as a believer in Christ, because I'm a believer in Christ, and, and if I were to ask you to raise your hand, which I'm not, many of you are followers of Christ. Now I understand some of you are not yet followers of Christ, and, and, and I hope God speaks into your life today. Because the greatest thing that ever happened to you is to come to know Jesus. But many, if not most of us, are followers of Christ. And here's my question. Do we have a responsibility to spread the message of Jesus to people who are lost? Whose responsibility is that? If there are 4,400 people groups that, that have nobody talking about Christ, nobody attempting to start a church, nobody attempting to share the gospel, do we have any responsibility? Is there any obligation to us to be a part of the solution so that millions and millions of people have an opportunity to hear the story? I mean, whose responsibility is it? Because a lot of times, here's the thing, a lot of times we just think, well, you know, I'll just honor God and I'll just serve God and I'll just go to church and I'll just kind of do my thing. But I believe, I believe we need to wrestle with this question because the end is coming. The end is coming. And there's over, gosh, there's, I mean, over half the people in the world, they don't, they don't have enough information to make a decision about Jesus Christ. So who's going to tell them if we don't? Hadn't thought about this, but this morning in my devotions, I read from Ezekiel 33. If you're familiar with Ezekiel 33, you, you know that it says it's, just, it's about the watchman. And God says, if I call out a watchman and the watchman sees danger coming and doesn't warn the people, they'll die in their sin, but their blood will be on the watchman's hand. If you're a follower of Christ, here's what you know. You know all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. You know Jesus, and I know Jesus died for people's sins. And we know that people without Jesus, when they die, go to hell. So if we don't warn people, their blood is on our hands. So I would answer that question to say, you and I as believers, we have an obligation 
to spread the message. Paul talked about that. Romans chapter 10. I don't think I told you to turn there. Romans chapter 10. I want us to look at a passage of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to introduce you or you'll meet a, a missionary in just a few minutes that has, has given his life. He's devoting his life to warning people and to telling that story. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 10. We've all heard the first verse I'm going to read, verse 13. We probably shouldn't. In fact, let's just, uh, this isn't coming up on the screen, but, but go up to verse, verse 11. It says, as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in these moments that you would convict my heart. God, I pray that you would convict our heart of the responsibility that we have to share the story, to spread the news of the gospel. Father, you've saved us, you've called us, you've set us apart, and we have a responsibility. Whether we want it or not, we have an obligation to spread the message of Christ. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts in a mighty and an awesome way. God, I pray that as a body, as a church family, God, here's my prayer. That we'll send more people the next year on missions than we ever have. God, I pray that in the next year, that this year we'll give more money to missions than we've ever given. Father, the end is coming. The world doesn't know. And we have a responsibility. God, convict our hearts today. Is my prayer. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to go out of here today with the burden for a world that's lost. Paul's writing to the Jews, and the interesting thing about it is, you know, he's writing to the Romans, and you know, there's some Jewish uh, people in Rome, and then there were some Christian people in, the Ro- in Rome. And so, in the context of this passage, Israel had been expecting a Messiah since the time. Of Moses, actually, probably even before Moses, uh, it's referenced in in Genesis three, and it's promised to Abraham in Genesis twelve and following. But they had been expecting the Messiah, and Jesus came as the Messiah, but he didn't look like they thought the Messiah should look, and so he didn't turn out like they thought the Messiah should turn out. And so, uh, most of them uh, didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And most of those who did recognize him rejected him as the suffering servant and the promised Messiah. And so, and yet Paul is saying, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that there's so much unbelief, and in spite of the fact that many of the Jews have chosen not to believe, everyone who does believe, 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who believes in him, they will not be disappointed. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we believe our, our hearts cry as a Southern Baptist, as a, as a born-again believer, as an evangelical, as a follower of Christ. Our hearts cry is, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If, if we know someone that, that's uh, dying or we suspect, you know, what we want to say to them, someone we love and care about, if we know they're about to step out into eternity and they're, and they're not a Christian, our hearts cry is, listen, if you'll call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. We, we, that's our heartbeat. We believe that and we know that it's true. It's happened for many of us as believers. And so here's the thing. If we know that's true, then whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Shouldn't everyone have an opportunity to call on his name? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't they? Should not everyone have that opportunity? And so here's what I want to share five thoughts. I think it's going to be five. Let me see if I can make that fit. See, now for someone to call on the name of the Lord, let me just say this as a premise. If someone's going to call on the name of the Lord, that means they have to believe the message of the gospel. And so I would just say, first of all, that believing is imperative. If, if people are to be saved, no one will call on Jesus until they believe that he indeed is the Son of God. No one will call on Jesus until they believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that's kind of the premise that, that believing is imperative. If anyone's going to step uh, across the line from unbelief uh, to faith and from darkness to light and from spiritual death to spiritual life, they believing is absolutely imperative. I mean, that is the, it is the utmost key. They have to believe. But notice what our text says. Look at um, verse 14. How can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? See, no one's going to, no one will ever call on Jesus and be saved unless they believe. See, believing is imperative. But let's take it a bit further. Look at the next phrase or the next statement. Because it says, and, and how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And so while believing is imperative, I would submit secondly, if believing is imperative, then hearing the gospel, or we would just say hearing is essential. People have to hear the gospel. They have to hear the gospel. I mean, how can people believe in a Jesus they never heard about? Now, I know that uh, most of us grew up in the Bible Belt. Most of us grew up, uh, particularly in this service, in, uh, in evangelical churches. Uh, most of us grew up going to Sunday school, vacation Bible school. It's really hard for us to imagine. It, isn't it hard to imagine that someone could be a grown-up and never have heard of the name of Jesus. I mean, for us, that is so foreign to us because we grew up learning the stories because we went to Bible school or we went to Sunday school or our friends in school went to Bible school or went to Sunday school. So it's really hard for us to make. In fact, not only did many of us hear about the gospel, hear about Jesus growing up, a lot of folks you and I meet, they heard more about Jesus than they wanted to hear, and, and so they don't even go back to church. 
Has anybody ever said, you, have you ever invited anyone to church? And they said, well, I had to go when I was a kid. I ain't going anymore. Mama drugged me. I ain't going back. So it's, it's hard for us to imagine. But there's 4,400 people groups. They don't know his name. They don't know the story. If, even if they've heard his name, they can't associate it with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and while that's hard for us and foreign for us to imagine, you know, uh, the fact of the matter is half the people in the world don't have enough information to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Now, now I understand, listen, uh, when, when the gospel shared, many of them will reject Christ. I mean, I understand that. Just like in America today. I mean, today, in auditoriums like this all over America, untold millions of people will hear a presentation of the gospel. And a lot of them will reject the message. In fact, it might be that you're here this morning and you've never totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. And you'll hear the message this morning. And it might be that you'll, today, you'll say, you know what, I'm, I'm just not ready yet. And you might say, I, I, I'm... I'm I'm not deciding today. Now, Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So to not decide is to reject him. But, the, but here's the reality. Every person that sits in an auditorium like this and hears the message of the gospel and rejects Christ, at least they have the opportunity to say yes or no. While we're in the auditorium this morning for this hour, 6,000 people are going to die and step out into eternity across the world. Now that equates, depending on which population clock you look at, but that equates to somewhere between 150 and 155,000 people a day die and step out into eternity. Several years ago, uh, three or four years ago, the the evening before I spoke on missions, I sat in the Georgia Dome at the SEC championship game. How many of you watched the game? Anybody watched the game yesterday? A few of you? Okay. I, so I wasn't there yesterday, but a couple of years ago I sat in the same stadium, watched uh, Florida and Alabama play. But as I sat there, I realized, you know, there was about 75,000 people in, you know, give or take a couple thousand, but roughly there's 75,000 people that were in the Georgia Dome yesterday and, and in those state, you know, that's kind of a ballpark figure. But between the time that game started yesterday at 3 o'clock and 3 o'clock this afternoon, twice that many people will die across the world. And at least half of them don't know enough about Jesus to even make a decision whether or not to follow him or not. So a stadium full of people are going to die and go to hell today. They don't even know his name. Nobody's told him his name. Nobody's cared enough to go. See, hearing, hearing is essential. How can they believe unless they hear? So, so believing is imperative. Hearing is essential. But look on in our text there in, ver- in the third part of verse 14. Notice what it says. It says, how can, how can they... Um, Hear without someone preaching to them. So 
um, I, I won't use the term preaching. Uh, I'll just use the term telling. If, if hearing is essential, then telling or maybe proclaiming is effective. It, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now, we don't always have a pot. Now, I've got to be careful with this because I'm a preacher. But we don't really always have a positive connotation with preaching. Because you probably said to your spouse, don't preach to me. You know, hadn't you? Are you, you know, your, your husbands, your wives said, or you said to your wife, don't, don't preach to me. Or you, you know, that, so we have this connotation about preaching. And so I, I want to be careful of that. You know, nobody likes to be preached to. That's why I'm the pastor, because I, I don't like to be preached to either. I'd, I'd rather do the preaching, uh, than, than get the preaching. But, but, but that's a little different context. But in the context of preaching, it's the proclaiming of the message. Now, here's what I want to tell you that's interesting. Turn right in your Bibles over to just a couple pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, listen, listen, now it's not going to come on your screen, but listen first to verse uh, 18. It says, for the message of the cross, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, uh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And then verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And so I want you to think about this. It, it's interesting because we always think, well, I don't want to be preached to. And we kind of think about preaching and God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. Uh, of all the ways God could spread his message, he's, he's chosen the foolishness of, of preaching to proclaim the message. But the interesting thing about it Paul says it's, you know, God's chosen the foolishness of the message preached. See, it's not the foolishness really of preaching. It's the foolishness of the message preached. But that message is the power of God. In the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's about verse 2 and 3, Paul talks about how you know, this is what I told you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was uh, buried uh, according to the Scriptures, and the third day that He was raised again according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared uh, to, to these and these and these and these. And lastly, He appeared to about 500. He said, last of all, He even appeared to me. But the, 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 foolish, the, the foolishness of the message is that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died an agonizing death. He was resurrected on the third day. And that those who believe in him can be saved. I was uh, in a conversation this week with uh, a friend of mine, and we were talking about this very thing. If you've never, if you didn't grow up in church, if you've never heard the story, and somebody comes say, "Let me just tell you about this guy named Jesus. He lived two thousand years ago. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. Uh, he was crucified. Uh, they, he was killed unfairly. They hung him on a cross, and he died." And they put him in a grave, and the third day he rose from the dead. And if you just believe in him, you'll go to heaven. Now imagine if you've never heard that story. That is a little bit left of center, or maybe right of center is the better choice. 
But yet God has chosen the foolishness of the message. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Look at, go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek or the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God. And if it's changed your life, and if it's changed my life, we need to do what we can do to share that story with people who are dying and going to hell. Because while we sit here today, 4,500 to 5,000 people, they'll die and go to hell. And we won't even think about it. And today, of those 154,000 people that die, probably about one out of eight and a half is a Christian. So if you do the math, that tells you that about 20,000 of them will go to heaven. And about 134,000 of them will go to hell. Now can we... Can we sit comfortably in our seats doing the same thing we've always done, knowing that the world is dying and go to hell? Can we? Maybe the better question is should we sit comfortably in our seats and in our houses? All the world around us dies and goes to hell. We can because we have. But should we? Believing is imperative. Hearing is essential. Uh, telling is effective. And then look at, the, look at verse 15. Uh, back in Romans chapter 10. And how, how can they preach... Unless they are sent. Going is expected. There is uh, the one thing that you'll find if you read the Gospels of Jesus. All you got to do is read the Gospels. You can leave out the Old Testament. You can leave out the rest of it. If you read the Gospels of Jesus, here's what you'll discover. He expects his followers to go. He expects his followers to go. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples. Mark 16, 15, he says, Go and preach the gospel into all the world. Luke 24, verse 47 and 48, I believe it is, he says, Go. John chapter 20, he says, uh, You'll be my witnesses. I mean, every single gospel, Jesus said, Go. In fact, in the, the night before he was crucified, the very night before he went to the cross, and he prayed for all of his followers. Listen, John chapter 17. If you'll turn there with me. This is our Lord. This is not some preacher talking. This is not some uh, mission guy talking. This is our Lord Jesus. In verse 18 of John 17, he says to his father, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Future perfect. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me, listen to this, through their message. If you're called to be saved, 
your call to missions. There's no special category for, you know, fully devoted followers of Christ that make disciples and do missions. If you're called to salvation, you're called to share the story of Jesus. Jesus said, it is enough for a servant to be like his master. And it's enough for a student to be like his teacher. Going is expected. Now, the reality is, many of us can't go. Physically. We can't go to some unreached people group in Tanzania or in Nepal or even in the ghettos of South L.A. But we can all sin. We can all sin. We can all sacrificially, significantly give of what God's entrusted to us. And say, God, I can't go, but I can sin. And that's really what the question is. Now, some of us need to go. In fact, some of you, God may be stirring your heart that you need to go on mission. And, and it doesn't mean that you've got to go to Tanzania. It doesn't mean that you've got to go to Nepal. My stars, for some of us, we could go across the street. I remember uh, a couple years ago, we were talking about foreign missions. I was talking about missions, and God said, well, you know, says, you know, I know you're worried about all them people over there, but there's a lot of people right here, and there are a lot of people right here. What I wish I would have said to him is, well, when's the last time you told anybody right here about Jesus? Because a lot of us hide behind, well, I'm not, I don't need to go there. I don't need to give money to go there. There's a lot of people here that are lost. You're right. There are a lot of people here that are lost. But I have two things to say. Number one, what are you doing about the people here that are lost? And number two, most people here already had at least one chance. And there's four billion people that haven't. So we need, if we can't go, we need to sin. Going is expected. And then last, real quickly, if you look there in verse 15, of um, I got so much more, but we need to move on. End of verse 15. It says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I would just submit this last principle is that giving is exciting. Giving is exciting. Now, if you want to get bummed out, um, I actually did this this week before I even knew I was going to talk about it. Um, I got on, for whatever reason, I got online and, and, you know, since the election, you know, the economy hadn't been, uh, market hadn't been doing too great. So I got on and I checked out to see how much I'd lost <laughs> since the end of last quarter. And uh, if you want to get bummed out, just look at what you've lost. If you really want to encourage your heart, just go back to like 2007 and look at what's happened with your 401k, retirement, anything that you have in savings anywhere. For the last five years. It will really encourage your heart. But imagine. Imagine if we'd invested that money. In the kingdom of God. Imagine if we just invested some of it. 
in the kingdom of God. See, there's a principle in Scripture, and I want you to turn with me over to Second uh, Timothy, or excuse me, First Timothy, chapter six. First Timothy, chapter six, verse eighteen. This is what Paul says. He says, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, listen, don't, don't misunderstand me. We, we need to all plan and prepare for retirement. Some of you are in retirement and you're, you're doing well, you're living well because you planned. And, 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 and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. We should. But if you really want your money to earn great dividends... Invest it in the kingdom of God because then the, the, the word says you'll take hold of the life that's truly life. If you really want to get a heart for the world and for missions, here's what you ought to do. Here's what we ought to do. We ought to give our money to missions. You know why? Because Jesus says wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, I, we'd all worry a lot less about the market if we had our money in heaven working for the kingdom. And if we had our money in heaven working for the kingdom, we'd be a lot more worried about the kingdom. So giving can be, it's exciting. And see, here's the thing that I think is really exciting. When, when we can't go, and again, most of us can't go, but when we can't go, we can give. And when we give, here's the thing. When you give to missions, you get to partner with people that do awesome things. Eric Reese is one of those people. I want us to show this video. Uh, I want you to listen. We, when you give to missions, you get to partner with guys just like Eric. So roll that for us, if you will, please. And he took 19 shots and six to the head. For fear, a lot of people don't want to take the gospel to places. But Eric and his wife and his family are taking it in there. So they have an exemplary killing there. Yeah. They're trying to send a message to them that if they don't pay the money, that that's what's going to happen to them. I got to Rio de Janeiro today. We're going to be spending the week working in some of the roughest neighborhoods in the world. My name is Eric Reese. My wife is Ramon, and I have two beautiful girls, Alicia, six years old, and Glory, which is 10 years old. I'm the strategy coordinator for the urban poor of Rio de Janeiro, which is basically the slums, what we call favelas in Rio. Uh, you can hear about killings on CNN, Fox News, what happened here in Rio in a slum. These favelas that are run by drug dealers are dangerous and violent, but the gospel got to get to them. This is a paramilitary community we're in. It's more than 100,000 people that squeeze in this little place. We had a massive fire that took out this place and left 2,000 people homeless. And I began to pray and ask God, how can I bring help? And I was able to set up a tent that was able to house 48 immediate families. That gives you credibility. It's not what you say, it's how you live and what you do. It's almost a year later, and I just do a Bible study on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock every night. We had 50 decisions, 
and they have integrated into two Baptist churches, which is some of our new starts in this community. Um, on the way home tonight, we stopped on the road. It's midnight. We prayed. We've had a devotion. We're going out to see if we can reach those that are on the streets. There are a line of prostitutes there. There are ministries here that Eric and the other believers here do to, to help get the prostitutes off the streets, to teach them a trade, to and give them hope. Every night, God always proved himself to be powerful. Around 3.30 in the morning, we had two young ladies that says, I need that. Her name was Carla. She's 23 years old, and to see the pain in her eyes and the fact that she really does want to live a different life, that this is all she knows at the moment. When you look at who God can use, Master, who's a drug addict, and what she do now? She goes into dangerous places with me. She's always praying. It'll be amazing the grace how God has changed her. If you could see her when we met her, and you see her now, only the grace of God can do that. Only the grace of God can do that. We're at one of the local Baptist churches here in the middle of um, this barrio, this neighborhood that we're in. We were introduced to the church. You know, we were able to sing some songs with them. This is uh, the, the Hovenness, the young people. They've broken in the groups and they're having Sunday school. Um, there's another group that's meeting right off the ledge right over here. I'm, I'm sitting on the back row with, with Eric. We hear... And nobody moves. And I look around behind me and Eric looks behind him. And I look out on the street and people are still walking by, you know, just carry on conversations like nothing's going on. How does forgiveness work in these type of slums in these communities of paramilitary and drug dealers? They gotta maintain that fear and control of the population. And some of the response has been, we gotta do what we gotta do. I say, what do you mean you gotta do what you gotta do? Well, Pastor, if we don't have order, if we don't have control here, then we can't even make space for forgiveness. These guys will kill you. So that's how forgiveness operates in both drug dealer community and the paramilitary community. There's times I've gotta move and I gotta leave. And there's times I can't ask nothing, I gotta go. So I must work within the reality of these slums. A young lady by the name of Donalika lives in Sedaja Dales. She's accepted Christ. She preaches Jesus to everybody in that little area. She's preaching Jesus, buddy. There's bullets flying around. That's one of the most dangerous areas that bullets fly. And I hit the ground and she rolled me down in her little Baja cone. And she says, are you all right? You don't think I have fear? When bullets are fine, I mean, I'd be lying, but I got to call it. And so I got to do, like the drug dealer says and the paramilitary, I got to do what I got to do. People say, I'm afraid for you. You see, if you really know the truth, I'm afraid for me not to do what God called me to do. Yes, when you give, you send guys like Eric and his family into places we could never go. If he's got to do what he's got to do, 
shouldn't we do what God wants us to do? I mean, imagine with me for a minute. You think of our church. What if, what if, we, what if we decided, each family, and said, you know, this year we're going to give as much to missions as we give away at Christmas to our friends and family. Imagine how many dollars we could raise to send guys like Eric into places we'll never get to go. Y'all, how, how, how many more toys do our kids need? Really? I mean, just let's just give as much for Jesus as we give for the same old stuff. So here's my challenge. You know, I, maybe, I don't know how you could do it. Maybe you, you know, you say, if you say, I don't have any extra money, just give half this year that you normally give. I, I don't know. But why not, why not just ask, God, do you want me to give as much for missions as I give for Christmas? Because I promise you that Barbie's head will come off and it'll go in the trash. But when some prostitute on a street corner gives her life to Jesus, it's forever. So, what are you going to do? What are you going to do for missions this year?